When Americans think of Christianity, they think of the Catholic and Protestant churches. But there's a third branch of the faith that is home to a quarter billion people. Join Tom as he shares his journey from Protestantism to Eastern Orthodoxy. And I share my journey from Protestant to Catholic. What led us down these roads? What do we discover? Is it biblical? And how is it better? How has the Eastern Orthodox Church helped Tom cultivate and enhance his faith? Recorded May 17th, 2021. So Tom, like we shared before, uh, we go way back. It's been about 12 years or so, or so. We met at the young adult service of a, of a mega church in LA back when you used to live in LA, correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's uh, been several years now, many years. Yeah, and that was a great sense of community. And I felt like the pastor back then, uh, he, I felt like he was speaking to my heart directly. So that was a rare gift and the sense of community was great. But it was around that time, around 2008, 2009. I know I moved to Kansas in 2009. And I think a few years after that is when you officially um, moved out of Los Angeles back to uh, Chicago area, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So it would have been 2012 for me when I left uh, California. And it was around that time, 2009 to 2012, that I think we both went on the same journey. Um, you know, we have a lot in common. We were, we both grew up uh, in the Protestant church, um, but it was around 09 to 12 that we started getting curious about uh, the other branches, the other main branches of Christianity. Um, for me, it's the Catholic Church, and for you, it's the Eastern Orthodox Church, both of which are uh, liturgical churches, um, churches that have preserved the old liturgy. And uh, yeah, I uh, thank you for coming out and uh, talking about your journey, and uh, I'll get to share a little bit more about my journey as well. Definitely. Yeah, so... So yeah, looking back, uh, what what were you know some of the triggers that led you to go down this path of exploring uh, the liturgical churches? Well, so as you mentioned, I, I think it was kind of around that time that you and I knew each other um, through the you know through the Protestant Evangelical Church that we were both going to. Um, it, it, it started would, me, see, the I, thing is, you, you would you would think, I mean, before I, before uh, I, you go further, you would think that we both had it good. We both, you know, were set in a really solid community. We had tons of friends. The, the worship was great. The pastor was great. The leadership was great. We, I mean, we had it all, we had it all made. Um, and I, I felt like we, we did have it made for, for that period in our lives. And I think, um, you know, you and I and some of our other friends at that time, we were, we were all kind of in the same place. And some of us would even be going in similar directions. Others of us, I think, were kind of like meeting at a vortex, like at the same place and then going in another direction after that. But I think for that time, um, you know, I do look back and reminisce about the, more than anything, the community um, of the Protestant church and, and that you and I had at, at our church in California, for sure. Yeah, it was a lot of uh, the 20 struggle, right? Whether it be that some for some people, they party too much and regret it. Uh, for other people, they might be recovering from certain addictions or bad habits in their lives. And I know for you and me, you know, we were both trying to uh, get our careers established after spending uh, 
years and years of school. And that was also during the Great Recession of uh, two, uh, just you know the wake of it, the 2008 Great Recession. So I think it was it was a good church for our 20 struggle. I yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. A good place to make friends, socialize, and um, you know build each other up for sure. Yeah, and 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 the preaching was great. The teaching was great. The 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 Bible study that uh, we were part of, that was also great. Uh, we have a lot of mutual friends through that. But uh, what happened after that? What were some of the things that caused you to look uh, down other paths? Yeah, so like I said, I think we, at, for a time in my life, and I'm, and I'm sure for you as well, um, it, it, you know, that church, the Protestant evangelical circle was the right place for us to be. Um, and, you know, going back further, I mean, I became, so I grew up, a quick, quick background of myself, I grew up in the Protestant church, uh, you know, with my parents, with my family, I became more serious about it, and uh, got baptized, I was baptized when I was a baby, but I was baptized again when I was 19, um, and, you know, at that age, it was kind of like deciding where I want to go in life, and that I wanted to, you know, be Christian, and through my 20s, it was good. Now, up to that time that you and I had known each other at that church, for some time there, I'm going to kind of go into like two things. One, like my general beginning of my journey um, towards Eastern Orthodoxy, which I, I would describe it starting with, it, it started kind of with me starting to feel um, the thirst or hunger for something more, for, you know, something beyond what what we had done and what we had learned, um, you know, through the Protestant church. It, it, it was emphasis on social life, community, which was great, but I think there was some deeper desire to, to learn more about what, you know, what Christianity really is. Um, for me, specifically the Bible, um, I, I used to read the Bible a lot, um, you know, like any good Protestant, yet you want to read your Bible and you want to, you know, search for answers in the Bible all the time. And I, you know, I read the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelations by the time I was in my early 20s. You, and, you uh, including numbers and uh, Leviticus? Everything. Yes, everything. Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, yeah, Psalms, every single one of them. I think Ecclesiastes was my favorite in those years. Oh, yeah, because everything is meaningless vanity, right? It, yes, very, very <laughs> philosophical, you know, nihilistic going on there. Yeah, I, I love that stuff. Uh -huh. so, you didn't get too freaked out by Revelation? I, you know, I used to be fascinated with Revelations. And, you know, I, I would reread that, too, a lot of times, like late at night, just by myself, you know. And it, it did kind of freak me out a little bit sometimes, because you don't know what it's talking about exactly and it you know it is almost apocalyptic in, in some of those verses for sure yeah well I also grew up um, in the Protestant church and both of my parents are also Protestant and you know I have the added dimension uh, in which you know Korean immigrant families um, the church the, the Korean Protestant church provides a very valuable support network uh, to these immigrants and their families and it helps um, uh, build an, an ethnic community uh, where, you know, Korean kids can meet each other and feel like they fit in and that they feel that they're not alone uh, in this diverse country. Um, and it 
the Korean church uh, was very good at, um, you know, teaching the faith and taking care of the kids and uh, helping them grow up and uh, discipline them and have them not be so rowdy. Um, so, you know, that's all I ever knew uh, was the, uh, the shelter that the Korean church provided. I continued on uh, going to a Korean uh, Presbyterian church in college, um, found about 150 quick friends like that, that I considered my family, um, you know, ran into them every weekday. Uh, there was always somebody I could run into and grab a bite to eat and share and talk and um, get to know each other and joke around. We played softball, went on retreats, go to spontaneous trips to San Francisco. I mean, it was great. And I got baptized in the Korean Presbyterian church. So, you know, as a result, all, all the way up to my upper twenties, you know, I didn't really feel the need to explore other um, liturgical churches like the Catholic or the Orthodox, because I was happy uh, as a Protestant and that's all I knew. I didn't have the um, antagonism. I didn't think Catholics were bad. I know, I know there's a lot of uh, 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 bad feelings, uh, antagonism toward the Catholic Church uh, that's shared by many Protestants. I, I didn't share that belief. Uh, I thought they were, you know, I didn't think there was anything that wrong with them. Um, they believed in God and Jesus, but uh, they were just too foreign. I, I didn't know too many Catholics personally. I didn't really feel the need to jump ship when I was happy with the ship I was in. Yeah, yeah, I I was kind of in the same place, and um, but likewise, I also you know never um, never saw Catholics or Orthodox as non Christians. Um, you know, I just didn't know that many, and and you know those churches were just you know never really on my mind. Now, I like I said, I, I used to read the Bible a lot, and I remember it got to a point in my late twenties where. I was reading the Bible and I would just kind of start struggling with like, what does this mean? Like I would read the gospels, for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I would even read those and, and start to question, you know, like, was this really written by Matthew or, you know, how, how can we trust this or, you know, other parts of the Bible, uh, Protestants, you know, like to talk about, you know, the red letters of the Bible where Christ is speaking. And then I've even heard some Protestants say that all the words in the Bible are red letters, like everything is like inspired by God, in other words. And I, I got to a point where I just kind of started to question that. I just started to take a step back from the Bible and looking through the different sections of it and realizing there's, there's different authors for different books of the Bible between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, it, it covers different time periods, like literally hundreds of years apart. So I, I started to kind of question the validity of, you know, how much can we just go to the Bible for every single answer? Is that almost too good to be true that there's this one book that is, you know, perfect and, and unchanged for thousands of years so and you that was you did this all on your own you did this all on your own I, your, your oh, questioning absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really yeah, interesting it, yeah it was my own questioning and you know like i said i was like kind of hungering for like what what else is there for me to do like the protestant church was great for social circle like you mentioned you know you would join people for coffee bible study softball team 
I was acting in plays, um, you know, played guitar in my churches, um, you know, all that stuff was wonderful, but there was like a thirst in me as, you know, I'm a pretty academic person. Um, and I know you are too, James, certainly. I, for me, there was really like an academic quest. I'm, I'm definitely a seeker. I, I definitely need to know more of why I believe what I believe or, you know, what is there beyond just this feels good. I, I want to study it more. I want to learn more. And also for the sake of, you know, just wanting to grow as a person. I think I also reached a point in, in my late 20s where I was wanting to, um, you know, like you and I discussed it, like we had made friends and we were wanting to, you know, improve in our lives in certain areas socially or, you know, yeah. with work, with friends, with, uh, you know, romantic interests, um, dating. And I think, you know, you want to grow, you want to become a better man. And, and I think it was kind of that greater thing in me too, of wanting to find, you know, something deeper that I just wasn't finding in Protestantism, where there's kind of these same platitudes, you know, like go to Bible study, you need an accountability partner. Okay, I've done that. I've been doing that. Um, you know, and a lot of the sermons in Protestant churches, after a while, they become kind of formulaic, especially at some of these, you know, bigger uh, mega churches. Um, Before we get to formulaic, you know, it's really interesting um, that you started questioning what you're reading on your own initiative, because I think like 95% of people, they'll just read something and read the text and be done with it and accept what it says. And that's that. But in the same way, you know, it would be like reading a novel or, or a Shakespeare play, you know, if you want to understand it deeper, well, you want to understand the historical context, you know, what events were going on at the time, what was going on culturally, when was it written, who is the intended audience of, of this writing, um, and uh, where, where does it fit in, you know, with the, the surrounding circumstances, uh, what was the writer going through uh, as he wrote uh, what he did, so, you know, that, that helps you um, uh, understand the text better. How, what's, what's most important is to ask, how did the people reading it at the time it was written, how did they understand it? Did they understand it in a way that's different than we would understand it in 2021 AD? Because the way we might understand it might be anachronistic. Yeah, and I think even in present day too, James, I think different people read verses from the Bible and find a slightly different meaning or, or understand it differently. Uh, one quick example, um, you know, there's that one popular verse, I can't remember what book it's in, but it talks about all scripture is God breathed and good for correction and teaching Second, and other things. That's the word Timothy, correct. right. Yeah. Second Timothy 316, right. That is the key verse that Protestants right. used to um, promote the idea that somehow the Bible is self-authenticating um, because this idea that all scripture is God-breathed and inspired and is useful for, you know, uh, correcting and rebuking and teaching right. in righteousness. So da, 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 da. Well, right. think about it. Think about it. When was second Timothy that, when was that letter written? When that letter was written, the new Testament wasn't even canonized yet. So at best, the phrase all scripture could only refer to the Old Testament. Yeah, exactly. That, that's pretty, that's pretty mind-blowing. I mean, yeah, and that's a big, 
that's a big point too, is that a good chunk of the Bible in the New Testament, um, as you said, it wasn't canonized till almost 300 AD, I think, or in the, in the third or fourth century after, you know, after Christ. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about canonize, you know, because we, we often think, first of all, we often think of the Bible as it's this self-authenticating thing, like as if God just kind of rained this book down from the sky and we grab it, oh, you know, like, but no, that's not the case. The, the Bible is a collection of several books and letters and poems. Somebody had to decide, hey, this is the Bible and that's not. Like, if you think about it, right? I mean, somebody had, who was it yeah. that actually made the decision what actually goes in the Bible, what actually goes in, belongs in this collection of writings that we now call the Bible? Somebody had to decide it. Well, yeah, who, exactly. who decided it? And exactly. Um, and, the, and the thing is, too, is like in that verse that we just mentioned, that's 2 Timothy 3.16. So when I first heard that verse and heard that word correction, I, people interpret that most people interpret that when they're saying correction as saying correcting other people, like that you can use scripture scripture to correct bad behavior or false teaching. When I first read that verse and heard the word correction in there, I thought it was talking about scripture itself, that scripture itself, some of it needs to be corrected or, or edited um, from time to time. So, so in other words, like the inverse, basically, that, yeah. you know, the scripture is not perfect and that it does need correction from time to time so it, that's a good example right there of how people can you know misinterpret verses and then that kind of opens the door to pretty much anyone picking up a bible reading it hearing a verse or two differently and then deciding no this is actually the way it should be and you know starting their own church and then you know then then expands to another denomination right right um, because and, you know and so i think that's kind of like a flaw uh, in thinking of you know thinking that scripture is perfect you know a, a lot of protestants a lot of christians like to see this idea that the bible should be set in stone like you know like you said like it's this perfect thing just sent down from the clouds above and it's there and um, and yet it's, I, I got to a point, I think, while I was reading the Bible, where I just started to realize, I, I think that's just too good to be true. You know, yeah. it was written clearly by different authors at different periods. Some parts of the Bible were not canonized, were not there for 300 years after Christ. What did the first Christians in those first 300 years do? You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> so, you know, you know, the, you know, going back to who canonized the Bible, Whoever did canonize the Bible might be worth listening to and learning from because whoever canonized the Bible, they might have a claim to be the original. And you make a very good point. If the Bible was not canonized until 300 AD or so, what did the earliest Christians do? How did they, how did they worship Jesus as God? Perhaps we need to draw some clues from the earliest Christians as to how we're supposed to practice our faith. Because I could tell you the earliest Christians, I don't think they envisioned rock and roll services with dry ice stages. <laughs> no, no, they certainly did not. 
And, and that is, and that brings us to another big point of why I got on the journey towards orthodoxy. Um, so the Orthodox church, I'm just going to, a quick story here. So I, I had gotten to that point where I had been questioning, uh, you know, the idea of sola scriptura, basically uh, upon my own reading. Mm -hmm. um, there was a day where I went to Greek festival. Uh, this was when I was still in California with a friend. And um, while we were there at Greek fest, hanging out, um, you know, there's music, dancing, food. We went inside the Greek Orthodox Church, just kind of wandered in out of curiosity, took a look around. And actually the priest was there and even came over and met with us while we were sitting in the pews, um, looking around. And he was very friendly. We told him, you know, that we were from a Protestant church and, um, you know, he had, you know, just asked us, you know, let me know if you have any questions. He showed us some of the details of the church, the symbolism behind the architecture inside of the, the Orthodox Church. Um, when you go inside of an Orthodox Church, the, the ceilings are painted with, um, you know, stories from scripture, from the Bible. And this mm -hmm. is how the earliest Christians worshiped um, in Orthodox churches going back to the early, you know, first century, second century AD, they would paint the walls and the ceilings in their churches such that when you would walk into an Orthodox Christian church, and they're still this way today, you, it's like you are walking into the gospel. You are walking into and being a part of the experience of God and his kingdom. And there are stories on the walls, like in my church, my parish that I currently go to, I go to a Greek Orthodox one. Um, there's a painting on, on one side of Christ before Pontius Pilate. Um, there are snakes on the ground next to Christ, symbolizing the devil, tempting him at that last moment um, before his crucifixion. And, and that's really how early Orthodox Christians learned, was it literally just from pictures. And yeah, you got you to gotta, you gotta understand, um, you know, the, let's, let's say it right now, the allegation that uh, Catholics and Orthodox, they, they worship idols. No. Well, you gotta, this is, an, this is very anachronistic because you gotta understand for centuries, even today, so many people can't read. And even today, most people that can't read are not good readers. The, by far the best way to preach and teach the faith is through art, communication through art and sculpture and painting and stained glass and stuff like that. I have, I have uh, met women who are agnostics, but they tell me, yeah, I understand Bible stories because of the artwork inside the churches. So this artwork works. And these days, Protestants do a good job um, evangelizing through media such as uh, video and movies and, and books and uh, uh, modern art and stuff like that. So art continues to play such a huge role in uh, teaching the faith. But go on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so that that day that I was at Greek Fest, um, you know, I learned a lot of things while I was at that church, just talking with that priest with my friend, and it was just a friendly back and forth conversation, and we wandered around, and I remember walking away that day with, you know, just kind of a thought in the back of my mind. I didn't immediately go make a beeline to the Orthodox Church right after that, but it did kind of hit me at that time in my life where I was seeking you know, something with a little more academic or artistic richness to it. 
And, you know, I remember talking to the priest that day and looking around and thinking, wow, there's a lot going on in this church here. Um, if even, you know, the architecture is symbolic of different things, of, you know, stories from the Bible and, and of, you know, helping to encourage you when you go into that church to experience what it means to be a Christian and how to become a Christian and how to, you know, continue in your daily daily struggle of, you know, walking and improving your walk with Christ. Yeah. You know, one thing that, one thing that uh, attracted me to uh, the Catholic church um, is this claim that it is the original, you know, in, uh, um, you know, at Caesarea Philippi, you know, Jesus tells Peter, you know, you, and you, Peter are the rock and on this rock, I will build my church. Well, what church is that? You know, if I could find that church, that claims to have a line of people that could trace all the way back to Peter, then, wow, I think I found the original and the original is something that I should take very seriously. I was really drawn to the idea that um, the Catholics uh, claim to be the original and I know the Orthodox also claim to be the original as well. Yeah, yeah, as I understand it, um, of course there'll be different stories that both sides will tell but as i understand it the there was a schism in the 11th century um between what what became at that time known as the eastern church which later became known as the eastern orthodox church and then the western latin church which was based in rome um and you know scripture was primarily written in latin at the time um and that you know there was like an east-west schism where the, the Latin church in Rome became what is today the Catholic church and the Eastern church, which was primary, had primarily headquartered in Constantinople or present day Istanbul um, became you know, the Eastern Orthodox church. But both of them, Eastern Orthodox Christians as well through apostolic succession can trace genetically you know, their lineage of their, can, of their bishops and their churches all the way back to you know, basically all the way back to the 12 disciples. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not here to uh, do too much battling on the Great Schism, but uh, um, what you mentioned richness. Um, can you specify like what part of the richness uh, was really appealing to you? Like, was it something about the liturgy? Uh, is it something about the, the church? Um, architecture. I know in Catholicism, many people say that they are drawn to the beauty of it all, like the beauty of the mass, the beauty of the church, uh, the beauty of the, um, the, uh, the customs and the traditions of the church, maybe, maybe the, the way they worship or something like that. Was there something in particular that drew you to the way uh, Orthodox exercise their faith? Absolutely. Yeah. The, um, the atmosphere when you come into an Orthodox church, um, when I first started getting serious about exploring Orthodoxy and visiting a few parishes, I, I had been holding off for a long time because I felt like I wouldn't fit in with it since I, you know, it just wasn't my roots and I, nobody in my family is Orthodox and I didn't know if I would, you know, feel comfortable there. Um, but when I did come to a few services uh, on Sunday morning, divine liturgies, I, you know, I was amazed. Um, I, I just felt like so much of a peace with myself when I went in there. Um, the architecture, the smell of the incense from the candles burning, 
Orthodox Christians venerate, um, you know, Catholics do that too, uh, you know, crossing yourself. Um, just many different aspects of the worship just really hit home with me. Like I, I loved the icons, um, the, the paintings as we've talked about telling the different stories. It, it definitely does bring you into like this atmosphere of feeling like you are truly experiencing something that is truly sacred and special that it's not just another you know mm. not just another part of something else in the world um yeah. when i go back to protestant churches now i i feel like i you know i some of the churches that are really you know like the mega type churches where they just meet in like a building or a field house it's like what is this you know like uh, you're hearing a sermon and you know you're listening to some contemporary pop music christian pop music but still it's like this this could almost just be like i'm at a rock concert and then i'm hearing like a motivational speaker at career day only there's some biblical verses sprinkled in yeah, um, yeah. and it, and it you know it just doesn't feel like there's anything sacred about it or anything that's special or set apart about it orthodoxy i go into an orthodox church and i feel like this is something special you know, it's yeah. authentic, it's changeless for thousands of years. And it's, you yeah. mentioned the word, you mentioned the word sacred, and that just hits the nail right on the head, because no, nothing seems sacred in Protestantism anymore, does it? You know, with with the Catholic and Orthodox, like you go in there, and you know, the building is serious, the, the worship is serious. Um, you know, uh, you can go, it's so much more contemplative. Um, you know, I feel like in a Protestant worship, at least in the rock and roll worship, you there's this pressure to feel like you're celebrating and, and happy all the time. But in a Catholic or Orthodox church, even when you're in your deepest and darkest moments, you can go, you can go in there and have a quiet moment of rest uh, where you get to meet uh, God um, inside. And that's just so refreshing. Um, and, and yeah, there's a sense that Things are just uh, so much more serious, so much more sacred, and so much more timeless. Uh, some, you know, the something that doesn't change with the waves of culture, but has remained, you know, largely the same, you know, over centuries. And and that's just something that that's really valuable. And, and 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 yeah, you mentioned, you know, a career day and motivational speeches with with Bible verses thrown in. Yeah, you know, I am I am a little, um, I am a little turned off by you know, this idea of renting a, a blank industrial building and uh, playing rock music and, uh, and you know, many churches, you don't even get to uh, meet the pastor anymore because they're playing uh, the video of a sermon from a satellite campus. Uh, so it's become this, uh, this kind of this uh, cheap mass produced um, product, I guess, uh, that changes with the time. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, definitely. Um, and in orthodoxy too, that there's parts of the doctrine, um, that kind of reflect that as well. The consistency of the divine liturgy where you are reciting prayers, you, you, um, I know in Catholicism, they call it the Eucharist In orthodoxy, they just call it divine liturgy, but it's, you know, the communion. And like you said, there's, there's moments for reflection. Also in Orthodox churches throughout most of the 
Divine Liturgy Sunday morning, you're, and in most other Orthodox services, you're required to stand throughout the entire service. There are a few moments when the priest speaks where you're allowed to sit down for a few minutes, but like 90% of the time for an hour and a half or sometimes even multiple hours, um, you're, you're standing the majority of the time. And that's because Orthodox Christians uh, believe that, you know, worship is work. And so you're required to, you know, even there's like a, there's definitely like a physical aspect, uh, a real tangible aspect to uh, worship in an Orthodox church um, that, that really challenges you. And another aspect that I love about Orthodoxy, another point is the idea that during that liturgy, it is really about God. And, you know, sharing in the, you know, the bread and wine and the communion of Christ, um, it really is like something about God and not about yourself. You know, like I think of many, many Protestant churches, there's just too much emphasis nowadays on it being like very you oriented. Like, you know, you listen to like a sermon that motivates you. And, and if some people get something good from that and it helps them to become a better person, that's fine. That's, that's great, you know. However, I, I think that there's a lot in Protestantism nowadays that seems to focus on too, too much. I think there's too much of an approach that people take in Protestantism that's too much, too emotional. I, I think mm -hmm. Protestantism approaches faith too emotionally, and it, it also focuses too much on just like making you like as an individual like hearing a sermon making you better or going to you know community group or bible study to make yourself better and there's you know less emphasis on on god and on the tradition yeah. you know i'm really glad that you mentioned that tom and and I, I i thought maybe i would explore that later but let's just explore it now um there's i feel like there's a crisis going on in the protestant church it felt like as late as 10 years ago you can go to a Protestant church and reliably hear um, biblical analysis, um, preaching on right and wrong, what's sin, what's not sin, you know, uh, discipline, correction, uh, just really like learning the faith, the Bible, what God wants out of us and what's right and wrong and some direct guidance, some direct spiritual guidance. But I feel like a lot of that has gone by the wayside in the last 10 years because there's this emphasis on almost group therapy. Uh, it seems like uh, a, a lot of churches are uh, exploring the realm of uh, how to heal from emotional problems, a lot of psychological issues. Um, it just seems like a big uh, group therapy where people are swimming in their, in their emotional problems uh, out, of a, out of a desperate need to find healing from them. And it's not, it's not the church's fault. It's not the people's fault. People really are desperately wanting healing from their emotional problems, but we have gotten away from the primary focus of church, which is God and what he wants out of us and have replaced it with, well, what could God do for me to heal my own problems? And uh, I think it's turned a lot of people away, unfortunately. Um, I think uh, as the church resembles uh, secular uh, psychotherapy more and more, it's, it's lost its relevance, unfortunately. Um, and it's turned a lot of men away from the church as well, because um, men want uh, some discipline and guidance and, and a sense of battling what's right and wrong. 
uh, men are not as into um, exploring their psychological problems. Um, and, you know, in, in these liturgical churches, there's no mistake that God is at the center. I know historically, um, before Vatican II, um, you know, people, people accuse the priest of turning his back on the congregation. No, it's not that the priest turns his back on the congregation. It's that the priests and the parishioners are facing God, who, is, who they believe is present in the Eucharist, the communion bread. We'll talk about real presence later, but everybody is facing God in these liturgical churches. It's about... Um, yeah, in, the, in the Orthodox Church, actually, uh, in the ceiling in the front, um, in every Orthodox Church, there is an icon of Christ or, or of the Virgin Mary holding baby Jesus. And so that way, no matter where you're standing inside of the church, no matter what chair pew you're sitting in, where you are in the altar, you can always see that, um, that icon of Christ. Um, what, no matter where you are, that you can see that icon and it can see you. So it's, it's, the, it's the emphasis, the symbolism of, you know, that God is at the center of the church and God, God sees everything. God can see everything we do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the church needs to go back to what it's qualified to do and what it's ordained to do is to help people encounter God and to help people understand what God wants out of them. And perhaps by bring, bringing people back to that primary focus, it'll help them understand their secondary focus, which is how to gain a better perspective on their emotional hurts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. let's go back, let's go back to uh, your, your journey, because in the Catholic Church, there's something called RCIA, Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults. If you want to be an adult convert uh, to the Catholic Church, it usually starts around fall. It's a weekly course um, with the same cohort, and you get to know this small group of people as you journey along uh, on your way to becoming an official member uh, the following Easter. Um, so Easter is a very joyful time uh, in the Catholic Church uh, for many reasons, one of which, well, that's when we formally introduce new members. Uh, how do you do it in the Orthodox Church? In the Orthodox Church, it's similar, only I think it's not as strict about having like an official organized course. Um, most Orthodox churches kind of just take it upon themselves. Um, it, so it can kind of vary you know, depending upon your priest and depending upon your church. At my church, um, we, we do have classes. I was actually starting into one before the pandemic started. Then after the pandemic, they called it off. Um, so then my, uh, my conversion process actually has been put on hold now for many, many months, for a year. And um, actually, just last week, I we also well we also had a change. My old priest at my church actually moved, so then we got a new priest this year. So um, I actually talked with him recently with my new priest, and I'm going to be meeting with him in some individual meetings, one on one. And he'll probably give me some more texts or readings to look into. Um, it usually also when you're a catechumen, um, when you're in the process of becoming Orthodox, they refer to it as that you're a catechumen. Um, so as a catechumen right now, he may also give me a, maybe a certain prayer or series of prayers to recite in the time being. 
Um, so sometimes it, you'll be a part of a, a small class and, and Orthodox Christians do also like to welcome in new members um, at Easter. But, you know, if, if there's no one else or if you want to quickly do it by yourself, um, you, you can just meet one-on-one -on -one with your priest and have some discussions and, uh, you know. Do so, that. Say, so it seems like a more customizable process. Is that, is that what I'm getting? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Yeah. How, far, how far are you along? Well, I'm, 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 I mean, I'm personally convinced that, you know, orthodoxy is, is where I'm at and, you know, what I want to, where I want to be at church and, you know, the way I see it now. Um, I, I think at this point, it, yeah, it'll probably just be a series of some more meetings with, uh, with my priest and, um, you know, then I have to also have a sponsor, um, but I already have a few in mind. I have an older couple, husband and wife, um, the, the husband, the old, an older guy at my church. Uh, he was actually one of the first people I met at my church who was also a convert uh, from Presbyterianism. So uh, we related right away um, and he'll probably, I'll probably ask him to be my sponsor. Um, and then I, he'll, he'll give me my, uh, my, chrismation name uh when you are chrismated it's in the orthodox church they call it chrismation the same thing as conversion in the catholic church do you so have you one in any, mind do you have one in mind or is that a secret I, no that's that well that's up to him that that'll be up to my sponsor so oh, I, okay. I don't know exactly how that even works yet but he'll choose a chrismation name for me yeah okay yeah you get to you get to pick a name uh when you uh, become catholic okay you get to name yourself after uh, a saint when you become okay. catholic <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's that, that's another fascinating and cool thing about it. You know, all these little reminders, ways to you know emphasize that you know you're walking as a Christian now. Mm -hmm. And saint, you have you know the Orthodox Christians. There's also kind of a metaphysical aspect to Orthodoxy. Um, you know, Orthodox Christians when you're praying, when you're praying with icons. Um, and that's almost like a whole nother discussion of theology that we could go into that, like you said earlier, James, you touched on it, that a lot of Christians misinterpret, you know, the idea of the icons and the statues. Um, when you're praying with the icons, there's, there is like a real belief in the presence and the power of God inside of things. It's also why Orthodox Christians emphasize having a crucifix in your home to pray before or a prayer corner with some icons. Um, I also wear a crucifix across around my neck. I have a necklace charm. So that way I have it with me whenever, you know, whenever I'm in a moment of distress or just a moment of reflection during the day, you know, I yeah. can kiss my cross. I can hold it while I say a prayer. Yeah. Um, before we, yeah. before we get more into that, cause I know that's, that's really important to both uh, Catholic and Orthodox uh, ways of worship. Um, but, um, you know, we talked about, um, asking follow-up questions as we read the Bible and, you know, who claims to be the original and who canonized the Bible. Um, what, what was the turning point in your life that, that led you to, to say, you know what, I'm, I'm diving in. I'm going to step, uh, I'm going to step foot uh, into the Orthodox church and get further involved. Um, I know you visited once and were amazed, but when, what was that? When was that point where you said, you know what, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to dive in further. I, I think it, it was kind of a gradual process. So 
as I said, like I started, it started for me with having questions, doubts about the validity of the Bible, at least how Protestants see it. The, the idea of sola scriptura, that the Bible is the only thing, that it's infallible, that it's all God breathed, that it, it is the authority. I started questioning that. And then also just other aspects of Protestantism that we've already discussed. The increasingly contemporary services, the music, the architecture—you um, know, like I like I said, both of us. I think when we were younger, James, we it was great for social life. But I think there there was something, um, maybe something in my tastes that kind of started to change um, as I started to like study more, and and I started to realize. I think the breaking point for me was really, I, I felt like I had no choice to go explore orthodoxy, where it got to a point where I would go to Protestant church and was just kind of feeling frustrated and almost angry, or I, I was angry, I admit, to a, to a point where I just felt like, you know, I don't like the, the architecture, I don't like even feel good when I come into this church anymore. And I, and I visited different Protestant churches too. And I did start going to a smaller one where I at least enjoyed the more traditional music, uh, traditional hymns and like a smaller church atmosphere. But even still there was, you know, there were doctrinal questions and it definitely got to a point where like I would just listen to people or pastors in Protestant churches or other people talk and it got to a point where I was disagreeing with them or just, you know, thinking privately to myself, like, yeah, I don't think that's right. You've already, you've already uh, explored um, these liturgical churches to the point where you, you understand their, their side of the story. So uh, you can, you, yes. kind of, you can kind of uh, uh, feel yourself like, uh, you know, respond, responding in debate to what the Protestants have to say, correct? Yes, yeah. So there's that there's that theological doctrinal side of it, um, where I had gotten to a point where I had explored orthodoxy, and I also explored the Catholic Church as well. Yeah. Um, why not? Why not Catholic? Because because Catholics, you know, far outnumber um, Protestants, and I know there's a huge Polish community in Chicago. So you know, and a huge uh, Hispanic community. So Catholic churches abound out in Illinois. Why not the Catholic Church? Yeah. So I. I do like a lot of aspects of Catholicism and it definitely would be my second choice after orthodoxy. I think I chose to lean more towards orthodoxy because I liked how orthodoxy, I think the core thing about orthodoxy that separates it from Catholicism is that it is changeless. The divine liturgy that's practiced in an orthodox church is not unlike the liturgy that was practiced in the earliest Christian churches. Um, and there's the the liturgy, the records in the Church of Alexandria that have been held historically, and any non-partial historian could, you know, tell you that today's Orthodox Church is the closest thing to a contemporary manifestation of, you know, the way Christian churches looked like, you know, in the earliest of times after the death of Christ. Are um, you are you are you concerned that? Uh, the Orthodox are kind of decentralized. You know, there's the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox and the Romanian Orthodox and the Ethiopian Orthodox and so on. Do you, do you wish that there was a more central body like uh, the uh, the Catholics have with Rome? Although you can you could say that there are 
non-Roman Catholic churches that are in full communion with Rome. So the idea that Catholics are fully centralized is, is somewhat uh, undermined as well, but go on. Yeah, that's true. And, and if I were to be Catholic, I would probably lean towards an Eastern Catholic or, you know, like a very traditional Tridentine Catholic church. Um, and that's one of my problems that I had with Catholicism is that many Catholic churches today are really just kind of like a step or two away from Protestantism. They've also watered down their liturgy, the, you know, even the Vatican itself. Um, you know, they've had councils, they've revised doctrines um, and, and within orthodoxy, there's, there's less emphasis on that. I mean, for one thing, orthodox Christians don't try to explain everything. There's not as much deep theology as Catholics have. For example, um, the, the idea of the wine and the bread during the Eucharist becoming the body and blood of Christ when you take communion. Um, Catholics, I'm sure you know, James, have the doctrine of transubstantiation, where they actually, I haven't read all of it, but they actually go into a detailed analysis of how that happens, how the bread and wine at Eucharist becomes, you know, Christ growing inside of you. Or Some people I, even try to explain it scientifically, which yeah, uh, yeah, I don't like agree with. I don't think and, it's yeah. supposed to be a scientific process here. We're talking about God and his power. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so in orthodoxy, that's one of many examples where orthodox Christians embrace mystery. Um, they, they call these things the mysteries of, of God. And one of them is the, you know, the breaking of bread and wine and, and you know, the bread and wine becoming Christ growing inside of you. They just say, it, it's a mystery. We don't know exactly yeah. how that happens. Um, you know, it's speaking, beyond human understanding. Speaking of mysteries, um, did you, did you have any big stumbling blocks in your, in your process? I know for, for some Protestants who convert to Catholicism, a big stumbling block is, is Mary and the idea that Mary should have a high position. Um, or for others, the biggest one is the transubstantiation, like, like the real presence, like the, the bread and the wine really become the, the body and blood of, of Jesus. We really think that we are you know, encountering Jesus you know, in person when, when uh, we see the, when we see the, the bread and the wine, you know, up there uh, at, at the church, um, you know, for others, it might be, uh, you know, a devotion to, to saints or uh, stuff like that, or, um, um, or I know um, uh, Vatican II, you know, the second Vatican council, you seem to be a little bit disillusioned by, by the changes that the Vatican made uh, back in the 60s. Um, what, what are, like, did you have any uh, big stumbling blocks along the way? I, I think for me, if anything, the most challenging part has maybe been building up um, a habit of prayer and, and at least early on understanding the, uh, all the canonized saints and, you know, praying with icons, with saints. That for me, of course, I think for any Protestant coming from a Protestant background is going to be weird. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. at, at first, you know, the idea that you have saints to pray and ask to pray for you for certain situations, whether it's health or healing, um, you know, health for a family member, or if it's for, for going on a journey, there, there's a saint in the Orthodox Church to pray to if you're looking for a spouse. 
um, looking to get married and start a family, or if you're looking for work, if you're looking for a new job, there's a saint for that. At, at first, that was strange to me, the idea that I'm going to have a prayer life where I'm going to be praying with icons and different saints for different situations that I'm praying for, and also with, you know, the Holy Virgin with Mary. Um, that also was kind of odd to me coming from a Protestant background where in some, and I think a lot of Orthodox Christians do acknowledge that in some Orthodox prayers to Mary, it almost, it almost sounds like they are worshiping Mary, but they are not just to be clear, you know, Orthodox doctrine, they don't see Mary as like on par or above Christ, but they do see her as, you know, the chosen mother of God that carried Christ. So she is special and she is worthy of, you know, our, you know, our veneration, our, our admiration. She, you know, she, we, there is a special place for her also in the church. And as well as those canonized saints, it, it, at first it was awkward to me, but after a while I started to realize this is kind of like family, you know, it, it is kind of like a family and you have different saints that you can ask to pray for you in a different situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's oh, man. it's it really it's adds like a family element to uh, to prayer, and, and and it adds more of a structure to to prayer life for me as well. And it's very comforting. And it's very, now to recite. And it's very comforting. Um, I know it's you know. Very during... comforting, and it's very structural. Whereas, it, in my final days when I was you know Protestant, that also actually was a struggle for me at, at some point with Protestantism, where I would just pray sometimes at night while I was falling asleep. And, you know, sometimes I would just fall asleep while I was praying. <laughs> and, yeah. and um, you know, at, at some point, it just kind of got to me where it's like, what does this mean? You know, or is it does any of this mean anything? Like, you know, yeah. when I'm praying, it, it just feels like, does any of this really matter if I pray or not? And when I got into orthodoxy, at first that was awkward, the idea of saints and, and the Holy Virgin and written out prayers. And, and you can make you can create your own prayers, but you also have some prayers written out that you're encouraged to recite. And at first that was kind of an awkward process, but as I practiced it more and more, it started to make all the more sense to me and looking back on Protestantism in my prayer life in my later years, at least as a Protestant, I can see why I was, you know, at such a personal struggle with my faith during those years, uh, waning, you know, because of that idea of like, you're just kind of off on your own. And it's almost definitely like the, the pray, you know, prayer to saints uh, is one of the biggest uh, misnomers. Uh, in the Christian religion, when people say prayer to saints or praying to saints, what they really mean is asking these saints to pray for you. And Protestants, yeah. they pray to the saints all the time when they ask their family or friends to pray for them, because we are all, technically, we are all saints and we are all priests. It's just that some people are canonized saints and ordin or, uh, uh, ordinated priests. Um, um, you know, I know with all of these stumbling blocks, oh, before I get there, um, it's really comforting, uh, to have access to these, uh, canonized saints, um, you know, cause I don't know about you, but I found that asking some of these saints to pray for me has been very powerful, um, you know, in, um, in the Catholic world, uh, there's a there's a very cliched uh, prayer to uh, Saint Anthony, uh, 
if you if you lose an item, <laughs> you can ask Saint Anthony to to pray that you'll find the item, and uh, oftentimes it works. Um, so <laughs> there's a there's a very cliched uh, prayer to Saint Anthony if you ever lose a physical item. Uh, I have uh, prayed to asked Jose Maria Escriva. Uh, he is a uh, he's from uh, Chile, I think. Um, he is known for a ministry called Opus Dei, which is about finding God through your everyday work. Um, and uh, he has the Opus Dei ministry publishes this uh, novena, which is a nine day uh, prayer, um, you know, where you ask him to pray for you. And, uh, you know, there's there's a nine day novena to pray for work uh, and a nine day novena to pray for your family. Um, and, you know, this prayer for work, I know it has, it took a while, you know, not, it didn't happen instantly, but it took, it took a while for me to find a job and to do well at a job, thanks to those prayers. And, uh, you know, Tom, did you go through a process where, you know, because you were Protestant, you, um, you kind of verified the teachings of the Orthodox Church, like against the Bible? Because I think one thing the Orthodox and Catholics can do better is to show how their teachings are biblical, you know? So for example, you know, the, in, in Catholicism, the rosary, you know, people in, in Protestantism, people think that's anathema. No, actually it isn't. It's a direct quotation of Luke two. It's what Elizabeth said to Mary when, when Elizabeth found out that Mary was pregnant. She, she said, hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Like that, like she literally said that. That's what it says in Luke two. Confession, John 20, 21 to 23, look it up. It, that's a reference to confession. Um, uh, purgatory, well, um, there is the idea of God being a consuming fire and you know whatever works withstand the fire will pass on to the, to the next stage and whatever gets consumed by the fire uh, gets blown away. Um, real presence, the idea that the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Jesus. I know that's anathema in the Protestant world, but the Bible says in John 6, 53, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He repeated this twice more. And you know what the, you know what it means when uh, Jesus repeats himself in the Bible? It means it's something that you got to take very seriously. Um, Mary being in a high position. Well, um, you know, Jesus, uh, uh, honored his mother. So if Jesus honors mother, perhaps Jesus's followers should too, because after all, Jesus is the king. Um, uh, and in the Jewish culture, the king, the mother of the king is also honored. Um, so when you uh, look in the Bible, you can find support for all of these Catholic positions and perhaps these Orthodox positions too. Did you go through a process of uh, verifying Orthodox positions with the Bible? I, I've definitely gone through that with some some points um, similar to even a few that you just mentioned. Um, uh, another good example, one that I recently even kind of looked into a little more is uh, the Protestant doctrine of the rapture. Um, you know, there's verses in Revelations as well as Luke uh, and, and I think Matthew, Matthew verse 24, um, which basically says, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Um, that's a verse that Protestants often point to to justify, um, you know, the second coming and the idea that there's a rapture where Christians will be taken up to heaven and, you know, everyone else will be left behind. And then you have like the Left Behind series that is based off of these verses. Um, 
And actually, when you the orthodox position on this is basically the opposite. The you know orthodox do not believe there's going to be a rapture. Um, and when you look at like Matthew 24 again, it's saying as were the days of Noah. Well, what happened with Noah? Noah built an ark, and you know there was a flood, and basically it swept away you know everyone who wasn't a Christian. And then you, you know Noah, who was faithful to God, remained. So basically, it's the opposite of what Protestants teach with the rapture, where it's this idea that Christians are going to be taken away and everyone else stays behind. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've talked about uh, some of your journey and uh, where you are now. Um, so how has uh, being involved in the Orthodox Church uh, enhanced uh, your uh daily encounter with God or regular encounter with God and how has it enhanced your faith and your worship and your life? Well, I think, as I mentioned, my, my daily prayer life, and I don't make it every day. I don't pray every day. Um, I'm, I'm trying to get there, but I do pray many days, um, you know, multiple days a week. I pray in the morning. I often will pray before work. There's an Orthodox prayer, a prayer before work that you can recite. Um, I think, like I said, there's a lot more structure when I do pray, because when I do pray, I pray to God. And then I also have prayers for, you know, a few saints for, you know, like I was looking for work, uh, late last year and was unemployed and I started working again this year. Um, I found a new job and, you know, I was praying to St. Shenia, um, who was a Russian woman many, many years ago, and she's a canonized saint to pray to uh, in a time when you're looking for employment, when you're looking for a job. Okay. Um, so things like that have really helped me. Uh, and even, you know, it's not even just about the fact that I found a new job. I, you know, I was confident I would find work. Um, but, but many things like that in my prayer life really helped me in my daily consistency of finding a new reason to care, a new reason to pray. Um, and really that has reinvigorated my prayer life. Um, I think also, you know, going to divine liturgy, like I said, when I go to an Orthodox church, I just feel so excited to be there. So much of a peace and a comfort with myself, with God, with that sacredness that we talked about that I feel you know, I, I feel like a whole new level of respect and reverence for God when I go into an Orthodox church um, yeah. that I hadn't felt in years after, you know, years of being Protestant. Um, yeah. It, it kind of waned on me. And so I feel in many ways, it's really been close to about three years now since I started visiting parishes and found a parish to start going to regularly. And I would say gradually over the past few years, my, my daily prayer life, and I don't get there every day, but along that, along with the different works, fasting that I have to do, um, we just had Holy Week, uh, the week before last, um, and the end of Lent season, which, you know, was awesome. And um, yeah, there's, there's just so many things about orthodoxy now. There's stuff there that I can study, and I, I feel like a new a new discipline in my prayer life and a new peace when I go to church Sunday morning there that just had been waning on me for years before. You mentioned discipline. It seems like the Orthodox Church then like provides a good method of uh, establishing more, more discipline in your daily walk, correct? And, and I know we've talked about 
uh, sacraments, uh, and we've talked about the use of icons and uh, crucifixes and, and objects to help, um, physical objects that help uh, uh, enhance the, the practice of, of your faith. And it seems like those are anathema in the Protestant world, but uh, we really need to distinguish. Um, we're not, you know, those objects are not themselves uh, gods or or uh, idols or divine. They have no divinity. They are merely used to help facilitate your worship. And, and in the Catholic and Orthodox world, we're not afraid of uh, using physical matter to help us facilitate our faith and our worship and our uh, encounter with with God. Uh, sacraments, you know, the Catholic definition would be an outward sign of God's grace, but I prefer this definition, which is where, where God is visible through physical matter or physical actions. So, you know, when you have communion, you know, God is visible through the bread. When you have marriage, matrimony, God is visible through, uh, the, the union. When you have, um, uh, uh, or ordination of saints, God is visible through that. And uh, when you have confession, God is visible through that. So, you know, God is visible, you know, um, physically uh, through uh, through the, through these things. And uh, it, yeah, it seems like uh, the Catholic and Orthodox world is not afraid of uh, using physical matter to help facilitate worship. Can you, uh, what do you think? Yeah, these these things like the icons, the architecture, they're there and they, you know, they're changeless. They're they're there to help you. They're there to help you put down that discipline and that requirement. Um, you know, having a crucifix mounted on your wall of your bedroom or your living room or wherever is convenient for you to pray to, having a prayer corner with an icon, you know, um, that that helps discipline you as opposed to just, you know, muttering off prayers while you're, you know, dozing yeah. off to sleep at 11 o'clock. I guess, I guess it's like having your own like uh, home weight machine, you know, to help facilitate fitness, you know, it's kind of yeah. like fitness, you know, you could try to DIY fitness and read, read it all by yourself and read about nutrition, read about kinesiology all by yourself and try to DIY all these things. But some people would rather, find a good guide and be who will say, Hey, follow me. I'll show you the way to fitness. And I think that's what the Catholics and Orthodox want to do is follow a good guide. Exactly. Yeah. There's, there's really, I think a whole lot more of a foundation, um, in, in the Orthodox church. And I know the Catholic church too, there's, there's more of a foundation that's there. That's, that's unchanging. And, yeah. um, you know, as you said, it feels like nothing is sacred today in Protestant and non-denominational churches where it doesn't matter what kind of building you meet in, the, the music is kind of constantly changing with the current fads, um, you know, even yeah. a lot of the messages and sermons. And, and just when I hear people talk in church, too, and like I said, I got to a point where I was like angry, feeling angry when I would go to my Protestant church after a while hearing people talk because another common theme that I see that I would see while I was a Protestant is like Protestants constantly chasing after fads, you know, like I feel, I feel like I'm missing something or I want to, you know, be rejuvenated. I need a retreat or something. And then, you know, I would hear people in churches say, you know, yeah, well, you yeah. go listen uh, to anything, from fads, anything from fads, anything from 
from uh, Joel Osteen to Dave Ramsey to Joshua exactly. Harris to yeah. uh, the Enneagram is the latest one. Yeah, you've got your flavor of the month or flavor of the year, you know, motivational or, you know, televangelist. It, it was Joel Olstein some years ago. Then I remember Francis Chan was kind of big for a little while. I think when you and I, James, were in California at the same church, I remember Rick Warren for yeah. a few years there was a big deal. Like the Purpose Driven Life book was out. Yes, and, exactly. And, and too bad, you know, it's really sad that his, his son committed suicide. And because of that, you know, uh, it, his his uh, ministry went downhill a little bit, and and it shouldn't have been that way, you know. Um, yeah, there, it's just too much like a cult worship of of pastors, and and I think it's part of a bigger problem in in non denominational and contemporary Western Christianity, where there's just too there, there's a yeah. lack of a foundation. There's too many. Let people me let practice. me add that when let me add that when a pastor does leave your favorite church in Protestantism, often. You get one third of the congregation leaving, and and it shouldn't be yeah. that way. There should be something beyond the pastor, beyond the the walls of the church, something even bigger, even greater, more sacred that uh, that you'll go there for no matter what. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely, and I think uh, you know that's a big part of Eastern Orthodoxy is the changelessness of it, the consistency. Um, <laughs> You know, there's the, all these things that we've talked about that some of them, that was kind of almost another stumbling block for me, you know, like the metaphysical aspects of it with like praying to a cross or an icon and the idea that there's like a power of God inside of these things. Um, you know, like as a Protestant, I was also coming from that background of thinking, well, it's just a cross. And I think a, a, a lot of people who are Catholic or Orthodox themselves who didn't really, you know, I think there's a lot of nominal, nominally Orthodox and Catholic people who never really learned or understood, you know, what is the purpose of the icons? What is the role of Mary? Yeah. Um, you know, what is yeah, the yeah. point of your crucifix that you wear around your neck or that you have on your wall? Before we get I into issues a of- A lot of them don't even understand themselves. And then this misinformation, you know, winds its way into Protestant churches and it leads to that total misunderstanding where it's like, no, that's, that's not God, but you know, these things are there to help you or like the works, the fasting. Before we get into issues of uh, community, uh, I just wanted to touch on one topic, uh, fasting. Uh, I know the stereotype is that Orthodox are big on fasting. Could you talk about fasting for a little bit? Yeah. So I was going to say like, um, there's a perception and a, and a false belief amongst other Christians that Orthodox will, Orthodox believe that we will go to hell if we, you know, accidentally eat bacon on our salad on Friday afternoon or something, you know, uh, <laughs> I accidentally forget it's Friday and accidentally have bacon with my eggs or something for breakfast. Oh, I, I was horrible at that. I'm not going to have like a lightning bolt come down and strike me in the head and strike me down dead. I, I was horrible um, at Lent, by the way, and, you know, on, on Fridays when I did visit my parents, I wasn't going to, like, reject, you know, what they cooked on, on Friday just because uh, it had meat in it. I mean, anyways, go on. Yeah, and so the, the point to uh, fasting, so Orthodox have a regular fast every week, two days, uh, Wednesdays and Fridays. So Wednesday is in memory of Christ the day that he was betrayed by Judas. And then Friday, the day that Christ was crucified. 
so we give up meat. Um, there's actually a few other items. There's, there's different levels of fasting um, in the Orthodox Church. But, um, and it's your priest, like you can kind of talk with your priest about it or figure out what fasting works for your spiritual needs. I give up meat. I basically give up all land animals on Wednesdays and Fridays. So I don't eat any beef, chicken, pork, bacon. Um, I'll, I'll have fish or eggs and that's it. And then of course, you know, fruits and veggies. Um, but there's the point to that fasting is again, to remember Christ at his betrayal and then his crucifixion, but it's also just there to help you to get discipline and to get, you know, get a handle on things in your life. And then if nothing else happens that week, if you do know, if, if I do no other good or feel like it was a bad week, otherwise, I can always look back and point to that and say, well, at least I gave up meat on Wednesday That's and Friday. And it wasn't easy. You know, I was tempted to go you know, have a hamburger or something Wednesday night, but I resisted. Yeah. Fasting I that for Christ. Fasting as Americans, we're, we're so like, that's such a foreign concept to us. But, you know, when you do it, um, it's very prayerful. And uh, you, fasting is easier than you think, uh, as long as you have a prayer state of mind. Uh, if you're fasting and you like go to the mall or something like that, that's not possible. But if, if you're fasting and you're, you know, you're, quiet and you have a meditative prayerful state of state of mind it's it's actually really cool and uh, you can you can get a lot out of that 